right now on Matter of Fact, when home is where the hate is. The warning signs about right-wing extremism were ignored for years. Now, how will America confront its biggest threat from within? Plus, have you managed to find the words to describe what's going on in the world right now? We haven't even come out the other side to look back and say, oh yeah, woo, that was traumatic. New York Times best-selling author Roxane Gay gets personal about writing into her wounds. Sometimes taking trauma and really facing it can be really useful and really healing. But first, hope is running out for a deported mother desperate to see her sons again. This has been a psychological torture for them. Why a new presidential plan to reunite families separated at the border may be too little too late for some parents. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Reuniting families separated at the southern border during the Trump administration is a priority for President Joe Biden. New executive orders will get the process started. More than 5,500 children were separated from their families, according to the American Civil Liberties Union. Many of those separations a result of President Trump's zero-tolerance policy, which criminally prosecuted adults crossing the border illegally. Today, more than 600 children still have not been reunited with their families, and many of their parents were deported back to their home countries. The executive orders signed by President Biden will review Trump administration policies and launch a reunification task force. But the daunting work of actually putting families back together is still months away. For the last month, our correspondent Jess Gomez has reported on the fallout from Trump's immigration policies at the southern border. In this installment, she talks to a mother from Juarez, Mexico, who hasn't seen her children in three years. In the Mexican border city of Juarez, we meet this 37-year-old mother from Honduras and the U.S. attorneys trying to help her. I pray, I pray a lot. The former pastor, who is afraid to share her identity, fled her home country with her two teenage boys in 2017 after she says six family members were brutally murdered. My children were 13 and 15 at the time. The threats against them and my family were getting worse and worse every time. We left in a rush and we were very afraid for our lives. The woman and her sons crossing the border into the United States in New Mexico, where they asked for asylum. Instead, she was taken to a detention facility in nearby El Paso, Texas, and separated from her children. I haven't been able to see them since then. It's almost been three years, three months since I've seen them. This has been a psychological torture for them. Uh, the trauma that they have endured as a family is, is very horrific. The woman's case, her attorneys say, part of a quiet zero-tolerance pilot program in El Paso. The Trump administration's policy, which became official the following year, resulted in thousands more children being separated from their families and sparked international outrage. By the time a judge ordered the U.S. government to reunite the families, the mother from Honduras had already been deported, her asylum case denied. 
tenía ayuda legal. I tried to gather as much evidence as I could so I could show to him, and he just deported me on the spot. The U.S. government, her attorneys say, argued that since her sons had been sent to live with a relative in Pennsylvania, reunification had already happened. The government's claim that reunification occurred because the child went to an aunt is outrageous. Attorney Lee Gallant led the ACLU's efforts to sue the Trump administration over family separation. While many families were reunited, thousands of parents had already been deported without their children. The ACLU and other nonprofits taking on the difficult task of finding them. We then got in the list of names from the government and it lacked phone numbers, addresses. We have been searching all over Central America largely without precise information. And on top of that, it's very difficult in Central America because of logistics, because of danger, and now we have COVID. The ACLU and immigration advocates applauding President Biden's executive order to reunite the remaining families, but say it should go even further. The reunification should happen in the United States, and every separated family offered restitution and a path to citizenship. We just have to make this right. The Biden administration, for these families and for the country and for the American people, has to make this right. Esto ha sido desesperante para mí. The mother from Honduras back in Mexico, alone and out of legal options. With the U.S. border just a few minutes away, it's the closest she can get to her children. Photos and phone calls for more than three years now, the only way to connect. For a mother, this is a very difficult and desperate thing, and I just want to see them again and hug them. In Juarez, Mexico, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. To see this entire series, including a report on what's next for 70,000 migrants seeking asylum at the southern border and the story of a federal judge who wants to help reunite families, go to matteroffact.tv and search immigration. Next, how a mom on maternity leave figured out how to speed up the vaccination process. Is this a model states should adopt? But first... Ignored it, minimized it and now it's at their doorstep. He sounded the alarm about the growing threat of white supremacy more than a decade ago. And now he has a new warning. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. When Democrats impeached Donald Trump, they said it was to hold him accountable for the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. But the majority of Republican lawmakers said it's time to move on. While Donald Trump is accused of fanning the flames, the fire was already lit. Last fall, the Department of Homeland Security warned that white supremacists are the most persistent and lethal threat within the U.S. So how were so many warning signs missed? In 2009, Daryl Johnson was an analyst with the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Intelligence and Analysis and wrote an internal report warning about the rise of right-wing extremism. You have spoken in the past about how the election of President Obama is really um, what brought an acceleration in white supremacy and its agenda. Can you put those pieces together for us and explain that? Sure. So back in 2008, we had the unprecedented election of the first African-American president. And this really played into the white supremacy 
uh, narratives where they thought that when a black occupied the White House, quote unquote, would be the lowest point in America. And so that led to fertile recruiting ground for white supremacists. So in 2009, then, you follow up with uh, an internal report. What did you find? What, what was your takeaway in this report? The threat landscape was going to be changing in the coming months and years because the U.S. counterterrorism strategy is predominantly focused on al-Qaeda and preventing the next 9-11 attack. Uh, but we have a threat here within that is persistent in its attacks and plotting and was growing year after year. Why do you think there wasn't an effort to start looking at white supremacy as an important and dangerous uh, area of growth when it came to domestic terrorism? Like, it just seems like a big miss. People uh, in the law enforcement and intelligence community saw that this was kind of a politically charged topic that really wasn't worth focusing and emphasizing because of all this political and social blowback. In the past year, I would say, have you have you seen a change in how um, sort of national security and maybe government forces generally and law enforcement generally have thought about the domestic terror risk? Last year, we experienced two um, additional facilitators of extremism here in this country. The first was the COVID-19 pandemic. And this really agitated and, and fanned the fears and paranoia of these far-right groups because now you have governments instituting regulations and orders and requirements to wear masks. The second thing that happened is the fact we had this uh, social unrest uh, surrounding the George Floyd killing. And so, again, uh, this fed into these extremist uh, fears and paranoia that this is going to spill out into the rural uh, small town America. So then let's talk about January 6th. I'm on Twitter. I'm on lots of social media. People have been talking about this very thing, maybe not all of the specific details, but definitely storm the Capitol. We have a, a, a thing we're going to do on this particular day. People who monitor these things seem to have been surprised. They talked about a failure of intelligence. Can you explain that to me? So, you know, it was a combination of Number one, the threat being minimized and, you know, turned a blind eye to the threat for the past 10 years. Number two, an overly cautious uh, law enforcement community that's hesitant about uh, going after these groups aggressively when they conduct criminal activity and terrorism. I understand you're an analyst, so you, I'm going to ask you to step out on a limb and just give me in broad strokes, like, what would you say at the very least, needs to be done in order to wrap our hands around uh, domestic terror and white supremacist threats. So it's actually quite a bit of stuff that needs to be done uh, to combat this problem. We need training, national training for our state and local law enforcement for them to get a better understanding of how these groups operate and their violent histories. Uh, we need programs in our schools, uh, anti-hate programs to educate our children on the dangers of extremist belief systems and conspiracy theories. It's unfortunate that it had to come to the nation's capital, like I said, to the doorstep of these very legislators who have denied the problem, ignored it, minimized it. And uh, hopefully this is a serious wake-up call for them. Daryl Johnson is a former Homeland Security analyst. Thank you so much for your information. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Still ahead. Author and cultural critic Roxane Gay says the world as we know it is broken.
but it's not as scary as it sounds. I think it's an opportunity for real change. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. We are in a pandemic. We've witnessed political violence at the Capitol and the country's confronting a problem that has plagued us since pretty much forever, racism. So if you describe the last year as traumatic, well, you certainly wouldn't be alone. Listen to this quote. The world as we knew it has broken wide open. There's a before and an after, and the world will never again be what it once was. That sounds terrifying, but it's an opportunity. That's from New York Times bestselling author Roxane Gay. It's from her new story. It's called Writing Into the Wound, published by Scribd Originals. Roxanne, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Your essay in Scribd was uh, amazing. It's called um, Writing Into the Wound, and it's sad, and it's beautiful, and it's incredible and a, a great read, but it also is all about processing trauma and how we get through it as individuals and how we get through it kind of collectively. Um, why did you write this essay? Actually, I wrote this essay because I had returned to Yale to teach a workshop on writing trauma, because it was a subject that I had been thinking about quite a lot with writing my book, Hunger, and a lot of my other work deals with trauma, not only personal trauma, but collective trauma. And then I thought this might make an interesting essay into exploring how do we write about trauma and how do we do it well? Okay. You're not going to get to sit in on a class with Roxane Gay, sorry. But, like, you know, the two things you can think about if you're sitting down to write about trauma, whatever it is, a personal trauma, a year of trauma, a year plus of coronavirus, what, what advice do you give? My primary advice is to make sure you have a clear sense of purpose and that you have a reason for writing about trauma that's more than catharsis, that's more than writing simply because it happened to me. You want to be able to look outward as much as you look inward and find ways of connecting it to the world that we're living in and uh, the experiences that people are having. You say, there is no pleasure to be had in writing about trauma. It requires opening a wound, looking into the bloody gape of it, and cleaning it out one word at a time, and only then might it be possible for that wound to heal. Sometimes taking trauma and really facing it and facing the consequences of it can be really useful and really healing. And I mean that in the least cheesy way possible. So um, it's just one of those things that I have tried to navigate as well as possible. And it's not always going to work. Sometimes you're not ready to process trauma. Sometimes it's just too much to face. Sometimes you can't find the right words. And that's okay, too. A lot of your essay is about this sort of collective trauma. I remember watching the George Floyd video and just thinking, like, I feel like I should retweet this so people can see this horrible thing. And I never know how to navigate that, right? Like, I feel like I'm re-traumatizing people, but talking about a thing that I feel like people needed to know. You, you felt like that was a, a real turning point moment. Why? Black people, we, you know, we all knew that this is the way it was, but now everyone saw, oh, they're not being alarmist. They're not exaggerating. It is this bad. And I wish it hadn't taken that because there were so many examples of how horrific police brutality is well before this. I think it's an opportunity for real change and not just, you know, changing your Instagram uh, avatar to a black square, uh, but actually having some systemic change in terms of how we deal with the police. It seems to me that we don't have a very good grip on the mental 
health impact of COVID-19. We haven't even come out the other side to look back and say, oh yeah, woo, that was traumatic. I don't think many of us have come to terms with the staggering loss of life. You write that you're not an optimist, really. You're more of a, a realist. Um, what does that mean in terms of looking sort of at like, what, what happens in this moment of time? We just have a lot of pieces that need to fall into place before we can have any kind of resolution and begin processing what happened. But I think it's important to face it so that we're not incredibly disappointed in June when life is not back to normal or really whatever the new normal is going to be. It's kind of what you write about writing, right? Like ultimately you just got to face it and dig into it and, and clean out that, that wound. Roxanne, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Next, why climate change could change how you sneeze forever. <laughs> Now to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention, even if you're too busy. If you have allergies, you may have already figured out pollen season is getting worse and humans are to blame. According to a new study, pollen season starts 20 days earlier, lasts 10 days longer, and levels are 21% higher than they were three decades ago. Well, why? Climate change, scientists say, the warmer the earth gets, the earlier spring starts for plants and animals, especially those that release pollen. Researchers analyzed pollen records from 60 cities in the U.S. and Canada from 1990 to 2018. Higher pollen levels have major implications for asthma, allergies, and other respiratory health problems. The lead researcher of the study said that the link between warmer weather and pollen seasons is a crystal clear example of how climate change isn't something that's decades away. It is in every breath we're taking right now. Next, a mom on a mission to fast track the vaccine rollout with one simple step. Finally, have you tried scheduling a COVID-19 vaccination appointment for a loved one or for yourself? It's probably been frustrating and complex. The late Apple CEO and visionary Steve Jobs once said, simple can be harder than complex. And that seems to be true for several states that built websites to dole out these critical vaccines. In New York City, vaccines were distributed by the city by the state and by hospitals, leading to different and confusing procedures for signups. A similar experience in California and in Massachusetts, the vaccine website just directs you to dozens of other sites without ever telling you if an appointment is really available. But have no fear, volunteers have come to the rescue, like Olivia Adams, a software developer on maternity leave in Massachusetts. She got to work creating this site that in one stop shows the number of available appointments by location. Officials in the state talked with Olivia this week, and now they are developing a site like hers. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.